Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a program about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and I'm an avid book lover. I really love listening to authors tell their story. So in each episode of Inside Books, we chat to an author and we also update you on other news from the books world. We love hearing from you, so please feel free to get in touch. You can email us on insidebooks at uniquemedia.ie or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is insidebooks.ie. Later on, we'll be chatting with Anya Toner, the editor editor of Woman's Way magazine about her new book deal and also her top reads for the very fast approaching winter evenings. But first, Martin Dillon is an investigative journalist and author who has spent the past 30 years chronicling the troubles in Northern Ireland. He has written a number of books about the horrendous conflict that rocked Northern Ireland for decades and he's now penned his memoir, Crossing the Line, My Life on the Edge. The book reveals encounters with a roll call of major political figures, paramilitaries and also Irish literary greats. He's now considered one of the foremost experts on global terrorism and organised crime. Martin, I suppose, first of all, let's put some context on your literary career. You were born and raised in Northern Ireland and you worked initially as a newspaper journalist, then moved to BBC Northern Ireland, where you spent 18 years. And this obviously gave you a really unique insight into the situation in the North. Yeah, I mean, there are several things I think worth pointing out, you know, because aside from that, the I, I grew up in, in Ireland. I grew up in Northern Ireland specifically. So you, you grew up where it's kind of baked into your DNA, the, the history. Some of it is never particularly um, accurate in terms of your, your interpretation or what you learn, because in Ireland we have this, I suppose, oral history tradition where we learn our history in our grandmother's knee. Mm-hmm. And so in Belfast, I learned from my grandmother and my great aunts about the 1920s, about the pogroms um, and about the the cult of the gunmen, you know, the, the, the heroic, so-called heroic figures. They're also dead heroes. I learned a lot also from the De La Salle brothers who were sort of fixated on Pierce, mm-hmm. where they, you know, I had to learn the poems by Pierce like the mother, you know. Right. So I, I grew up in, a, in an environment where Jerry Adams was in the same class as me, but I didn't really remember him. He wasn't, he didn't stand out as someone who was remarkable at that time. Um, so it, it was a narrow vision that I really had of Ireland and of history because I was growing up in a divided society also with two traditions. So it took me time to, to learn that there, were, there was another tradition as equally important in, in, the, in the history of Ireland Maybe not so much in Irish history, but in the history of Ireland, the history of this island. And when, though, did you start sort of digging into the underbelly? I think I think when I started uh, in print journalism, I mean, I'm a great sort of fan of print journalism. Um, I think we probably need more of it today than we ever, we've ever done in the past. I mean, because of this Trumpian era, um, we need that kind of investigative element. So I, I started in, in a weekly paper, which was owned by the Irish News in Belfast. And learned a lot about sort of rural Ireland and not much about the, the, the conflict of the past. It was only when I moved into the Irish news, and that's when everything was kicked, kicking off. I mean, I'm talking about the troubles. There, there were elements of it. You, you had the, the kind of nastiness of the, the mid the late 60s. You had Paisleyism rearing its ugly head. Um, you had all this bitterness that suddenly was resurfacing. It had been bubbling underneath the surface. And I was I was kind of aware of it like most people, but I didn't know enough to know that someone was going to sort of set a light to this and it was just going to explode. So when it happened in August 1969, I'm a young reporter and suddenly the, the society's engulfed in bitterness and, and 
burning houses and British guys, many soldiers with bayonets on the streets, looking like little toy soldiers that I used to have as a child. They really looked comical. But it was a serious situation. And you were in an interesting situation where working with the media, you had access to the world of politics on an official basis, let's say, but also you were on the streets dealing with what was going on there and talking to the ordinary person. That was the, that was the important thing about print journalism, that I had to spend a lot of time in the streets. So therefore, I was in all the areas where the conflict was taking place, where things were exploding, um, where people eventually were sticking up barricades and creating these surreal areas run by militias, almost like paramilitary organizations. Um, this is before the sort of provisional IRA took the stage, um, you know, to sort of demonstrate their belief that romantic nationalism was the way forward. And in, in a sense, it, the society was totally dysfunctional. A lot of people were drinking too much. People were taking medications. Um, and they had these illegal drinking clubs where they were playing all the songs I remember from me, my grandmother, my aunts. Until, yeah, these were all the songs about 1916. And, and also on the other side, I, I found the same thing. And what drove you then? You were obviously reporting on a day-to-day basis, but what drove you to write, to write your first book? I think what, what happened was... Th- most mornings when I came in, I was working in the Irish News and then the Belfast Telegraph. I, was, I liked getting in early. and Bodies were being dumped in alleyways overnight. Um, and I'd be sent out by the news desk. Another body found in some street right off the, the Short Strand or East Belfast, North Belfast. And the more that, that I was reporting these bodies, I began asking myself, who's doing this? Mm-hmm. Is it an organisation? Are these gangs? Um, what, what's going on here? And I began to realise that a lot of these killings were grisly killings. Um, and when I saw one sort of naked body of a, a mentally retarded kid who had been branded with hot pokers, a uh, cross uh, branded on his back in the number eight, I began to say, I better find out because people, I think a society in conflict need answers. They need to know what's happening. You, you need to know how to be safe. You need to know what's going on in, in your world and who's doing and was it a case that society at large there were actually afraid to do that digging to find out or they just didn't want to well, know? Well, people were scared and didn't know how to go about it, really. And the, the, the other thing, too, was that there were sort of confusing um, and, you know, confusing assessments, of lots of conspiracy theories, lots of what might be called now fake, right, explanations, fake, kind of fake news. Um, and, and you've said a number of times as well that there were double agents and triple agents and this was actually a reality. Yeah, and the, the other thing too that struck me was that um, I had to tell people, look, in your midst at the moment there's a, an assassination campaign sectarian. I mean, I didn't know immediately, I didn't know the detail. The British Army was involved in it by, they were using sort of secret squads to go out and kill people. This, these were targeted assassinations, state-sponsored. And you had the, also the paramilitaries. So the army killings were being blamed on the paramilitaries. They would say there's another killing prob- probably by the IRA, the U- U- UVF or the UDA, or just an unsolved, another unsolved murder. You know, you see this, this phrasing. And I... I, I began to realise there's a need for a, a deeper look at all of this. So I, that's how I came to write Political Murder. Mm-hmm. I mean, at first, my editor in the Belfast Telegraph said, look, um, you know, this kind of thing you're saying about people being killed in what were called romper rooms and illegal drinking clubs at night, they, they don't exist. I mean, the name romper was derived from a, a children's television programme. Can you imagine people actually who were killing innocent people and torturing them in front of revellers and clubs calling the clubs romper rooms. Mm-hmm. So 
I, I went ahead and wrote one of the first books, The Troubles for uh, Penguin, called Political Murder. You've gone on then and written over a dozen books at this yeah. point across, you know, those pretty horrendous decades as such. Very fact-based uh, work, obviously. But from an emotional perspective, again, it must have been difficult at times to write it. It was very hard. It's hard when you're actually living in a society. Um I mean, I'll give you an example. I, I came away one, one evening from covering a riot in North Belfast. And I walked down the street, and it was a hilly street, and I'm walking down the street, and it's about two o'clock in the morning. And the next day, a person who lived in that street told me that about an hour or so before I came down the street, there was someone lying, looking up the street, waiting for a victim with a three oh three rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was threatened by people. Um, I worried about my my young sisters who lived. I worried about my father. Everybody was under some kind of stress. But it wasn't easy. It was very difficult. But it didn't stop you doing it, though. No, it didn't stop me doing it. I didn't realize that sort of 20 or more years later, I would end up having nightmares about a lot of things that I saw. And these are, you know, things that you can't control. And you're, you're sleeping hours as a reporter, as a rational person. You can sort of control your thoughts. But when you're sleeping, there are things that come back just to haunt your memory. I mean, haunt your, your life and the, these sort of memories of awful happenings of bodies and parts of bodies, people being, you know. It, it's, 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 it's something that is very difficult to come to terms with and explain. And is that one of the reasons why you've written your memoir now? I think one of the things is that I wanted to make a good confession. I was always writing about, you know, I was always writing about other people. And I said, I'm going to write a, a, you know, an autobiography. And then I began to realize it, it would just expand and expand. Too many people, too many places, be hard for people to read. And I thought also people have always asked me, why did you do this? Why did that happen? Where did you come from? Um, and I thought, well, perhaps... I'll make a good confession of it. That's at all possible. So like this sort is, of seeking it's, absolution. It's the and inside so story. I go to a memoir. I thought it'd be easy, but it wasn't. I was going to say, did you find it quite different from a style perspective? I yes, and I thought it was. I thought it was difficult because I had to be. I had to be very selective. And, and when you're writing about your your late parents, or you're writing about family members, or you're writing about other people that you knew well. It's it's more difficult. There's a kind of a, an emotional thing that you really have to get over, a kind of bridge. Um, and sometimes a bridge too far, so you leave stuff out of a memoir. But generally what I try to do is to be straight with the reader and say, look, here's where I grew up. I never talked to people about being in a seminary at 12 years of age uh, or what happened. I never talked about being sexually abused by a pedophile. Mm-hmm. There are things I never talked about. Uh, for instance, I never talked about the, the whole undercover war in terms of terrorist agents. And there's one agent in the book that I deal with a lot, and that is Agent Ascot, who was a, an IRA commander and also a pedophile, who was a British spy. And he may well have killed a lot of people, but also saved a lot of people, according to the people who were running him. According to one of his handlers and according to a man that I know who guarded him, he said, OK, he was a bad guy, but he saved a lot of lives. So does that make it right then? That's a, that's a, that's a very, very interesting question. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the questions about the counterterrorism war, one of the, this sort of moral ambiguity, where guys that I met who worked in it and made these kind of decisions said, OK, sometimes, you know, you, mo- you have to sort of sacrifice, uh, you know, one to save many. Right. But sometimes you're sacrificing innocent people. You're not, they're not being asked. Do you want to be sacrificed? So the reason they were being sacrificed was to, to, to protect the integrity of an agent who's working in, let's say, the IRA. 
You have to let him be a good terrorist. He has to be a good operator so that he has the confidence of the people he's working with. Otherwise, he's of no value. Otherwise, he's not going to be deep in the organisation know everything that's going on. And he blows his cover, obviously. Yes. So you may have to let him take out an RPG-7 rocket launcher and fire it at an army jeep and maybe kill three soldiers because he may well save 100 lives over a period of time. And how did you feel then when you found this type of information out and knew that it was going on? I, I, found, it, I found it very difficult to come to terms with initially and then I began to realise that the, these, the, this is the reality of a, an undercover war, of a dirty war. Uh, for instance, Agent Ascot, who was the IRA commander in the markets area, who was the pedophile, the guy who protected him, I call him Peter A. in the book, he said, look, Martin, this guy was a hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said he saved a lot of lives. He told us about bombings that were about to take place. And OK, you know, he may have sort of abused young men. He may have killed some people. He didn't say how many. But really, at the end of the day, he was saving more lives than he would ever have taken. And you think, well, I, do, I wouldn't want to make those decisions. I, I can't moralize about the people who do because I don't live in that world. I can only report on it. I think, that, I think society has to answer that question. Is, the, is this what we want? Should we allow this kind of strategy, these templates to be applied to um, defeating terrorism? And I would say it's probably happening um, within the battle against ISIS or against al-Nusra, where you've got people inside the organization. And you know they're terrorists, but they're really your terrorists, OK? And if it was happening then, one can only assume it's happening now. You know? I, I, I would say, it, I'd say it's the most effective way. <laughs> Man-to-man surveillance is very, very difficult. Um, most terrorist organizations in the world at the moment are well aware of the strategies used by the intelligence community to track them. So they don't use um, phones, even burner phones so much anymore. The internet they're careful about as well. Um, The best way to track a a terrorist is to maybe use 30 or 40 people, but they have to be trained. Mm -hmm. And they have to be trained in man-to-man surveillance. And you're watching somebody 24 hours a day. In somewhere like England, if you've got maybe 1,000 targets, and there, there may well be more, um, who are potentially dangerous. Scotland Yard doesn't have the, the numbers. Multiply a thousand by forty, and you've got forty thousand people you would need, and you know. So they don't do that. Numbers don't add up. You can't do it. So what do you do? You have to penetrate, burrow into the organisation, use blackmail, whatever you have to do, um, whether it's sexual blackmail, whether it's money, to recruit people within the organisation. You need the terrorists inside to be able to give you the information you require. And you do contribute now quite a lot to a lot of radio and TV programmes talking about terrorism on a global basis. Yeah, talking about terrorism, about organised crime. And I spend a lot of time in Eastern Europe. Um, I'm there probably about three months a year. Mm-hmm. So I, I get a, a broader kind of view of what's happening. I mean, a, a couple of years ago, I was asked um, to write a piece uh, about the Middle East. And I, I took talked to a source of mine in the intelligence community in that part of the world. And he said to me, there are dark clouds on the horizon. And I said to him, what do you mean? And he said, look at Syria, just watch, watch what's happening. There are people who knew this was coming. Um, and, th- and then it came with a vengeance. So I, I kind of keep contact with a lot of really good sources. And from time to time, then I'm available or the right articles. And what is your view on Northern Ireland at the moment? I, you know, I arrived in, in, in Belfast well, I came up from Dublin. I love Dublin, okay? And I used to spend a lot of time here when I was a young man. Um, I went out to Belfast last week, and I was more than surprised coming up from Dublin. The, the, the cathedral quarter, lots of restaurants. I mean, there's a kind of vibrant nightlife now, which there wasn't during the Troubles. 
But I think there's kind of an there's an what I may may call an uneasiness. I think people are not sure about the future. You've got this Brexit thing hanging over people. I think the Northern Ireland people deserve better politicians. I personally feel the politicians of God, I mean, are not doing a particularly good job. I mean, they've been sitting around for nine months now doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Northern Ireland needs good politicians. It may take another generation or so. Young people expect better. They don't want the politicians they have now using the same templates that took them down a dark, dark road for several decades. I think, I, I hope, I really hope for Northern Ireland, but I, I also worry because the Good Friday Agreement ended what people call the long war, but it didn't address many of the underlying causes of the violence, and like I, the tribalism, t- children not going to the same school still. And I think people are worried about the Brexit negotiations in terms of the border and how that's going to pan out. Of course, because people don't want to you know, create any in- instability within the whole framework, peace framework. Um, so I think David Davis, and I know because John Major sent David Davis to see me when they were considering doing a deal with the IRA, to ask me what could they do a deal with Adams. He knows what you know a hard border would do. So the, I think they've got to find some kind of mechanism that ensures the peace process is protected and all the gains that were made. Otherwise, everything else becomes cosmetic in terms of the, the economy in Northern Ireland, which looks better. Um, the fact that people, even though they're uneasy, they're leading a better lifestyle now than they ever did during the Troubles. And hopefully it'll it'll uh, continue along those lines. Now, you do mention in the book as well your personal relationships with some Irish literary greats, such as uh, Dennis Johnson, Ben Kiley and J.P. Dunleavy, who actually just passed away a couple of weeks ago. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, I didn't know Dunleavy particularly well, but I knew Ben Kiley. I knew Ben Kiley very well. I mean, I once shaved Ben Kiley on a Saturday morning. <laughs> I, I came down to see Ben and he'd been out the night before and he was a little unsteady, uh, the way we all get sometimes. And he, and he actually said to me, he said, would you shave me? I said, you know, no man has ever asked me to shave him, but I'll do my best, Ben. There's a first for everything. Yeah. And did they influence your own writing? I, I think Benedict Kiley more than anyone else. I, I really adored him. Uh, I remember traveling up to Oma with him um, to make a program about his, his parents um, and his early history. I, I think meeting a, a lot of the people here, Sean O'Fuelon was one of the people I thought his work really impressed me terribly. Um, Dennis Johnston, I, I admired greatly. And the reason you moved, though, finally from Northern Ireland was because you were getting death threats. Yeah, there were several reasons. One, one, I was kind of tired of uh, my work with the BBC at the time and all the battles I'd fought within the BBC. Um, and I also had death threats hanging over me anyway. And after a while, when you're living with a, a gun by your bed at night and you say to yourself, well, I don't want a nine millimeter Browning or a Glock. I'll, I'll have a, you know, an over and over, over and under shotgun, 12, 12 gauge because I can clear the staircase if they come up the stairs. And I'm looking, looking under my car in the mornings. When, when you realize you're saying those things yourself and you're actually doing that, you begin to realize that your life is on edge and it's, it's getting out of control because you shouldn't really be living with that at all. It's the stress, um, going into restaurants and you know facing the door, making sure your back's not to the door so you see who's coming in. I'll give you an example, something that nobody knows because it only, this only happened in the past 24 hours. I went up to Milltown Cemetery yesterday because um, I, I hoped to visit my mother's grave. Mm-hmm. And I drove into the cemetery with, with two friends. And I saw certain people and I, I came out, I didn't go to my mother's grave. 
because those are people I don't really want to see in, in a cemetery where there are narrow lanes where you get trapped in there. I just I come out. Just turned around. Yeah. And, you know, I said to myself afterwards, that's sad, but, you know, that's the reality. If you had your time back again, would you do it again? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that um, I think journalism is so, so vital. It's so important. You know, the, the age we're in at the moment, they call it the Trumpian era, where the media you know, is under, under, under awful ties, under siege, um, where the, the internet's, not, internet's not always the best source of, of good news. We, you need good journalists and you need good newspapers, good broadcasts. We need it. We need good journalism. It's, it's so important, so vital. If we lose that, we, we lose a lot. And what are you working on at the moment? I finished a novel which is based in, in rural France. Oh, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> From Northern Ireland to and, America and actually, to rural France. And it's France. about crackpots, right? So it's probably, it's probably something um, that takes me in a, in a different, different direction. And quite a different, again, writing style than your fact-based novel. Yeah, because there's someone, that, there's a company republishing a novel of mine called um, The Serpent's Tale. But it was published years ago and I gave up novel writing because I went on to write other things like God and the Gun and The Trigger Man and the assassination of Robert Maxwell, Israel's super spy. Mm. Um, and so I'm back to the novel form. I think it's just to give myself a kind of break. From the, uh, from the, the, the day-to-day grind. Yes, 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 exactly. yes. Exactly. Well, Martin Dillon, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Books. And Martin's book, Crossing the Line, My Life on the Edge, is in bookshops now. Thank you very much. Follow us on Twitter on Inside Books IRE or email us on insidebooks at uniquemedia.ie. Anya Toner is the editor of Woman's Way magazine and, by her own admission, is a total and utter bookworm. When she's not reading, she's busy interviewing authors and writing book reviews for Woman's Way, as well as editing the entire magazine, of course. She's joining us today to recommend some great books that will take us through the long winter nights ahead. But before we get into that, Anya, you have some big news. You've just written your own first book. That's right. This is actually really exciting because this is the first time I've got to speak about my debut book. I I I love even saying the words debut book, debut novelist. It's 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 tremendously exciting altogether. So this is your debut interview for your debut book? It is. Oh, yes. Well two, two ticks off my bucket <laughs> list. Yeah. It's um it's very exciting. It's coming out in January the eleventh. It's called Let's Talk About Six and it's set in Dublin. Six friends of a sort, I suppose, six people who know each other, I suppose, and then they kinda their relationships with each other and with people outside their kind of social sphere as well. So why are, what inspired you to write? Uh, well, I, I just wanted to write. I wanted to write since I was little. I'm sure there are a lot of people who want to write. And I think it kind of comes, not doesn't come naturally because you're working in publishing, but also I think you're surrounded by people who do write all the time. You speak to a lot of authors and you get tips and ideas from them as well. And you go, well, sometimes I just need to sit down and do it myself and see if I've got a book in me, if I if I can go the 100,000 words. And, and, and you can, have. And I have. <laughs> yeah. And how long did it take you? Um, about nine months. And then it sat on my desktop winking at me um, on my computer for about six months. And why was that? Were you nervous to show it to anybody? Or? Well, I think it was done. And I was like, right, well, that's it. That's me. I've got that done. I can do that. And then I forgot. No, I didn't forget about it. That's such a lie. Um, I just kind of, I was worried. Yeah, I just, well, this is it. I've got it done. And then nothing's going to happen now. And then I thought, well, maybe 
maybe you should have a go and then we'll just see what happens if you do put it out there as well. So you did put it out there and what happened? It did. Uh, I did and I got the, I got a lovely email back from a, a publisher called Manatee Books and who said we're very interested in this and we'd like to see I, I'd only sent in 20 pages we'd like to see the whole book. Um, I sent the whole book in and within a week they came back and said yes this is this is what we want. Wow that was quick. Uh, very good yeah it wasn't what I was exci- expecting on a Saturday afternoon in Belfast I can tell you reading um, my email. And were they the only publishers that you went to? Yes they were. And had you chosen them particularly? Um, yes and no. Um, I saw them on Twitter. Um, I saw that there were a new publishing book, their company, they were doing ebooks, which is something I hadn't got an awful lot of um, kind of experience in as well. Um, and I thought, well, do you know, why not? Just send it out there and then have somebody read it. And if they come back and they say, yes, it's good, but it needs a lot of work to it. Or yes, it's it's not that good. Do you know, at least yeah. you have one way or the other. You have somebody reading it who who you can respect as well and then you can kind of take it from there. And was there much tweaking to be done? Not a lot, no. Um, oh, that was lucky. great. I know, I'm very lucky. Um, to be fair, that book had been worked and worked and worked over and, you know, when um, when I wasn't sending it out to anybody, I was working it and I was looking at it going, well, maybe I need to edit it a little bit more. Maybe I need to change it. And I was taking a huge chunk. I took, I took about 20,000 words of it out um, and they had sent back a few changes. Now, not nothing that was dramatic, nothing like taking out a character, taking out a chapter or, or a scene or what have you. And then I'm currently doing my line edits now. So it's uh, there. These are words that I've only talked about to authors. <laughs> it's a very strange phenomenon. I'm like, oh, yes, I'm just real. doing my line edits now. Um, so that's just line by line. Just, you know, if there's like a comma or a, maybe changing it an apostrophe that kind of thing and as you're reading it back now do you want to sort of go and change loads of it or you're happy with it I'm I'm probably the happiest I've been with it and, that's great um, no I, I I feel very comfortable with it do you know I mean it's been in my head for such a long time it's been looking at me for such a long time and I and I feel I feel that they're part of me a little bit I feel that my characters are part of me and I and, oh. and, and who is the audience that's aimed at uh, women um, and I think it's that kind of commercial women's literature kind of the genre um, the publishers are dubbing it as kind of a romantic comedy and I, and I suppose it is in a way I mean it's certainly uh, I want to make people laugh that's really my default right. setting um, and uh, I think so, some of it's funny it makes me laugh do you know and I think that's not too bad <laughs> well, a thing that's, that's the main thing exactly <laughs> and it's going to be on shelves then in January yeah it's a, it's, so it's an, um, an e-publisher so you can download it from the 11th of January you can also buy it in a physical copy on Amazon but uh, it'll be mainly kind of for the Kindles and the tablets and that kind of thing and as this gets closer then are you nervous about how it's going to be received Terrified, absolutely <laughs> terrified. So much easier coming in and, and talking about books that I've read than around books that I've written. It's um, it's quite a bit of a different phenomenon. And that is it because you're used to reviewing books, but in the not too distant future, others are going to be reviewing yours. So, yeah, that's a scary thought. Yeah, I had to be ready for it though. I mean, I think you can't dole it out and then not take it at the same time. You know, I think if I'm critiquing books or talking about authors I like and you know the ones that I maybe wouldn't read you have to be fair you have to let somebody else give you know give them the chance to say whether I like this or I didn't like this or if there's there's a way of improving it you know you have to Go have to be it. have to be a big grown up I think about well, this that's <laughs> it and develop a thick skin as exactly such. and remind us of the name of it again it's called Let's Talk About Six brilliant well we'd be definitely keeping an eye, an eye out for that now in January but back to books now that you're going to recommend mm. over the long winter nights you love crime fiction I do. so no surprises then that one of your recommendations is the latest from Andrea Carter The Well of Ice it's pretty yeah it's his third in her detective series with um, Ben O'Keefe she's a, one of the she's a 
visitor. She's based in the Inishowen Peninsula. And I mean, the setting itself is almost like a, another character. You know, it's just so beautiful. And it, it's December when the third brick is set in. It's almost Christmas. Ben's looking forward to spending what she hopes is her first Christmas with the very, very lovely uh, Sergeant Tom Malloy. But then things don't go quite according to plan. A pub burns down. The barmaid has gone missing. And they make a rather um, grim discovery. It's all so happening it's, <laughs> in, it's the, just, in, the, in the one place. Yeah. And do you need to have read the other two before reading this one? No, I don't think so. Particularly the third one, because um, there's a lot of backstory um, in the third book that you, she, she meets people from her past that she's maybe not that comfortable with. And you get the whole story kind of in press A, I suppose, press A form um, in the third book. So you don't need to have read them. It does help, obviously, mm-hmm. in an NA series, but you don't, you wouldn't need to. And I, I have to say, I really enjoy her writing. I think it's really clean and clear. And I just, like I said, that the descriptions of where, where the space is are so beautiful as well. It's a real kind of picturesque view for Ireland. Brilliant. The next one then is a literary choice. It's The Sparse Holt Affair by Alan Hollingshurst. Yeah, people might recognise him from The Line of Beauty. Um, he won, won many, many awards for that. And uh, I, I just... I just think his writing is just incredibly beautiful. Um, it's based on uh, three Holly or sparse souls, sorry, uh, David, Johnny, and then Johnny's daughter Lucy, as they kind of go through England and starts in nineteen forties, moves way right up way up to like nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, and it's just so layered. And what I love about his work is that it's as much about what is said, what is not said, as what is said. So right. there's so much stuff goes off off the page, and you, I think that takes a great confidence as a writer to be able to go, well, these things are happening. You just have to trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's enough happening on the pages to keep your interest as well. It's just beautifully layered, really just it's just oh, it's the kind of writing that you want to be able to get up and do in the morning. It's gorgeous. And one of one of those books that remains with you afterwards. Completely, completely. And I, I think, you know, it it's it's very current in it, in what it talks about as well. Um and I think he just handles things in a kind of it's not controversial, it's not trying to make any kind of massive point. It's just very well written, very well argued and really engaging because of that. Then your final recommendation is The King of Lavender Square by new Irish writer Susan Ryan. Yeah, it's based on, she was in a a, in a flat in Rathmine. She saw people who were living clo- in close proximity to each other, but weren't speaking to each other. And in fact, were deliberately ignoring each other. And she thought, well, you know, what could bring a community together um, to be more neighbourly? And the whole idea of being neighbourliness is kind of what framed um, the King of Lavender Square. So they're they're all based around this lovely square. There's a little boy and um, his mummy's there and his mummy doesn't quite well and people have to kind of muck in, I suppose, mill in and kind of help and become more friendly. And through that, obviously, they learn a lot about themselves and a, a lot about each other as well. And, you know, it's it's a, a bit like a bit of an epic read, I thought. You know, it's it's so detailed and it, it goes much further than you think it's going to go right. as well, in term, even in terms of a time frame. And uh, I think we could learn a lot, you know, like, I think you started out, it's about loneliness as well. And that loneliness is a very important thing, obviously, anyway. But to talk about it in literature, I think is a very difficult thing. So I think Susan's done it in a very beautifully crafted kind of way. And this is her debut fiction Completely. Novel. And I, I would absolutely love to see what else she's going to come up with after this, because I was really impressed with it. Well, similar to yourself, a debut, a debut <laughs> author. Fingers crossed. Exactly. Well, that was a great wrap up. Thank you, Anya Toner, editor of Woman's Way magazine and soon to be debut author. Thank you for joining us on Inside Books. Thank you. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at InsideBooksIRE. And if you want to get in touch, email us on InsideBooks at UniqueMedia.ie. I'm Brida Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a Unique Media production.